I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Welcome back to the James Cameron season. What you have here is a remastered version of our 2012 podcast for Digital Gonzo on his third film, 1986's Aliens. This is unequivocally one of my favourite films of all time, one of the most influential films upon my work of all time. It's really important to me. Sharon and I considered re-recording an entire show because when we did The Terminator, she was a permanent host on the show and we are totally happy with our Terminator and Terminator 2 shows going out exactly as they were back in 2015. But listening to the original version of this for the first time in years, it turns out we're very happy with almost all of it. What I've done is trim out a few things that aren't relevant anymore. Rampant speculation on how great Prometheus was going to be and how many questions about the alien it would answer. We all know how that turned out. Some messiness and not getting to the point got left on the cutting room floor and a section where we talked about how difficult Cameron is or was to work with as a director. Something Sharon and I will be going into in supreme detail in our Abyss show coming next week. Unfortunately, back in 2012, the director used to compare him with as a favourable alternative was one, Joss Whedon. We didn't know then that this guy would turn out to be a secret nightmare to work with, especially for women. Either way, the original Aliens show is still on the School of Movies archive feed if you really want to hear it, but this director's cut is, in my eyes, definitive. And if you're asking yourself, where are it? Third film? Aliens? Terminator? What about Numero Uno? Well, that would be Piranha 2 The Spawning, or Piranha 2 Flying Killers, that James had a rotten time directing in 1982, two years before he did The Terminator. He'd rather we all forgot it, but Sharon and I have done a 40-minute after-school special on it, which, if you're on our Patreon at the $5 level or above, you can listen to this week. If you're monitoring the feed, you'll notice we already re-released The Terminator, which means that next week we will be proceeding with the brand new show on The Abyss from 1989. After that, I'll re-release The Terminator 2 Judgment Day show from 2015, then we're doing True Lies, then Titanic, and finally Avatar. And of course, if he ever gets around to making them, we'll cover the Avatar sequels. In the meantime, let's go back to the movie I watched over and over and over again as a kid. Probably a bit too young for it. Aliens. And with that, we cue the trailer. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Are you ready? Yeah! Are you ready?
Hudson. Uh, I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving and it ain't us. Get them out of there. Back when I was producing Digital Gonzo, it was just me hosting every week, and Sharon occasionally guested on the movies she particularly liked. We did that for like 159 episodes from 2010 through to the end of 2013. Then in early 2014, Sharon came on as a permanent host of Digital Drift. Then in 2015, we rebranded ourselves as School of Movies. And also on this show, we had guests Joshua Garrity and Leah Haydu of Canaan Rinse. Hello there. Hello. Matt Ramsey of Do Try This at Home. Good evening. And James Midgemeister Perkins of Starburst Magazine. Hello. Following the success of The Terminator, Cameron and his partner Gail Ann Hurd were given approval to direct and produce a sequel to Alien, scheduled for a 1986 release. Cameron was enticed by the opportunity to create a new world and opted not to follow the same formula as Alien, but to create a worthy combat sequel, focusing more on terror and less on horror. Sigourney Weaver, who played Ellen Ripley in Alien, had doubts about the project, but after meeting Cameron she expressed interest in revisiting her character. 20th Century Fox, however, refused to sign a contract with Weaver over a payment dispute and asked Cameron to write a story excluding Ellen Ripley. He refused on the grounds that Fox had indicated that Weaver had signed on when he began to write the script. With Cameron's persistence, Fox signed the contract and Weaver obtained a salary of one million dollars. A sum equal to 30 times what she was paid for the first film. I think we can work out where this pay dispute came from. Weaver nicknamed her role in the Alien sequel Rambolina, referring to John Rambo of the Rambo series, and stated that she approached the role as akin to the titular role in Henry V or Women Warriors in Chinese classical literature. Aliens was filmed on a budget of $18 million at Pinewood Studios, with productions lasting 10 months. Production was affected by a number of personnel and cast disruptions. Shooting was said to be problematic due to cultural clashes between Cameron and the British crew, with the crew having what actor Bill Paxton called a really indentured way of working. Cameron, who is known to be a hard-driving director, and at the time was bound to a low budget with a release date set that he could not delay, found it difficult to adjust to working practices such as the regular tea breaks that brought production to a temporary halt. So you're in England, James. You've got to work with the tea breaks. The crew were admirers of Ridley Scott and many believe Cameron to be too young and inexperienced to be directing a film such as Aliens, despite Cameron's attempts to show them his previous film, The Terminator, which had not yet been released in the UK. Imagine how frustrating that must have been. Come on guys, I really can direct. What's this? It's got robots. 
At one point, the crew members mocked Cameron's wife, producer Gail Ann Hurd, by asking her who the producer was, and insisted that she was only getting a producer credit because she was married to the director. A walkout occurred when Cameron clashed with an uncooperative cameraman who refused to light a scene the way Cameron wanted. This was on the extras. Does anyone know this story? I've heard a lot about it, but I've never delved into it. In right, it's... It's on one of the documentaries, but basically this guy was like a classically trained lighting engineer and he lit the uh, queen's nest perfectly. You could see absolutely everything, thus it completely fucked the scene. Because if you can see absolutely everything, it's a puppet. After the cameraman was fired, Heard managed to coax the crew members into coming back to work. Philosopher Stephen Mulhall has remarked that the four alien films represent an artistic rendering of the difficulties faced by a woman's voice to have itself heard in a masculinist society, as Ripley continually encounters males who try to silence her and force her to submit to their desires. Mulhall sees this as depicted in several events in Aliens, particularly the inquest scene in which Ripley's explanation for the deaths and destructions of the Nostromo as well as her attempts to warn the board members of the alien danger, are met with officious disdain. However, Mulhall believes that Ripley's relationship with Hicks illustrates that Aliens is devoted to the possibility of modes of masculinity that seek not to stifle, but rather to accommodate the female voice, and modes of femininity that can acknowledge and incorporate something more or other of masculinity than our worst nightmare of it. So basically that bit where Hicks agrees with her and says that they go and nuke the site from orbit, only way to be sure, is the first time that someone listens to Ripley in this film. Several movie academics, including Barbara Creed, have remarked on the colour and lighting symbolism in the Alien franchise, which offset white, strongly lit environments, spaceships and corporate offices, against darker, dirtier, corrupted settings, derelict alien ship, abandoned industrial facilities. These black touches contrast or even attempt to take over the purity of the white elements. Others, such as Kyle M. Ortega of Emory University, agree with this interpretation and point to the Sulaco with its sterilised white interior as representing this element of the second film of the franchise. While some claim that the shape of the Sulaco is based on a submarine, the design has more often been described to as a gun in space, resembling the rifles used in the movie. Author Rod Cavani called the opening shot of the ship travelling through space fetishistic and shark-like, an image of brutal strength and ingenious efficiency, while the materialised interior of the Sulaco, designed by Ron Cobb, is contrasted to the organic nature of the Nostromo in the first movie. So specifically, like, the uh, hypersleep pods were very sort of insect-like, and when it sort of popped open, it was like insect wings, whereas these are much more like refrigerators. The android character of Bishop has been the subject of literary and philosophical analysis as the high-profile fictional android, conforming to science fiction author Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, and as a model of a compliant, potentially self-aware machine. His portrayal has been studied by writers for the University of Texas Press for its implications relating to how humans deal with the presence of an other as Ripley treats them with fear and suspicion, and a form of high-tech racism and an android apartheid is present throughout the series. That is true, actually. This is seen as a part of a larger trend of technophobia in films prior to the 1990s, with Bishop's role being particularly significant as he proves his worth at the end of the film, thus confounding Ripley's expectations. Now, does anyone know how these fared at the box office in terms of aggregate score? Anyone checked out Rotten Tomatoes' freshness? No, I haven't. Um, because these films have become like classics, you kind of just assume that the uh, review scores are very positive, but mm. I'm not sure. I'm assuming when you say these films, you're referring to the first two, right? Oh, yeah, sorry. Alien 1 and 2. Yeah. It's pretty much everyone's, it's a given that everyone goes, yeah, Alien 1 and 2, great. And you can pretty much take or leave or hate 
the, uh, the the next four. But if you actually profess to really enjoying any of them, you kind of have to back yourself up, it seems. Yeah, Alien got 96% uh, freshness rating. It's, uh, it's got three poor reviews, which I'm going to read you now. I'll just a brief snippet. These things no longer surprise or tantalise us as they once did. In a very short time, science fiction films have developed their own jargon that's now become a part of the grammar. That's Vincent Canby of the New York Times. It is depressing to watch an expensive, crafty movie that never soars beyond its cold desire to score the big bucks. That's Frank Rich of Time Magazine. And an empty-headed horror movie with nothing to recommend it beyond the disco-inspired art direction and some handsome, if gimmicky, cinematography. That's Dave Kerr the Chicago Reader. Now, these are not just hack journalists. These are actually writing for established newspapers. And interestingly enough, all three of those came after 2005 as reviews. So up to that point, it was 100% across the board. I think one of the things people forget is how tight the script for this thing is. Cameron writes all of his films, and he's got a knack for dialogue but also for conflict within dialogue and for directing his actors to get that back and forth. He knows where the tensions lie and they are really good at conveying it. I don't understand this. We have been here for three and a half hours. Now, how many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Look at it from our perspective, please. Please. Now, you freely admit to detonating the engines of and thereby destroying an M-Class Starfreighter, a rather expensive piece of hardware. $42 million in adjusted dollars. That's minus payload, of course. The lifeboat's flight recorder corroborates some elements of your account, in that, for reasons unknown, the Nostromo set down on LV-426, an unsurveyed planet at that time, that it resumed its course and was subsequently set for self-destruct by you for reasons unknown. Not for reasons unknown. I told you. We sat down there on company orders to get this thing, which destroyed my crew and your expensive ship. The analysis team, which went over the lifeboat centimeter by centimeter, found no physical evidence of the creature you described. Good. That's because I blew it out of the goddamn airlock. Like I said. Are there any species like this hostile organism on LV-426? No, it's a rock. No indigenous life. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? Ma'am, I already said that it was not indigenous. It was a derelict spacecraft. It was an alien ship. It was not from there. Do you get it? We homed in on its beacon. And found something never recorded once in over 300 surveyed worlds. A creature that gestates inside a living human host. Yes. These are your words. And has concentrated acid for blood. That's right. Look, I can see where this is going. But I'm telling you that those things exist. Thank you, Officer Ripley. That will be all. Please, you're not listening to me. Kane, the crew member. Kane, who went into that ship, said he saw thousands of eggs there. Thousands. Thank you. That will be all. God damn it! That's not all. Because if one of those things gets down here, then that will be all. Then all this, this bullshit that you think is so important, you can just kiss all that goodbye. What we had delivered to us there was exposition. 
but it was recrafted and reframed to make it dramatic. I mean, they just basically kind of like, if you missed Alien, this is what happened. But they set Ripley up in opposition with these aloof, patronizing corporate types. And it's insidiously apparent that human lives are less important to them than the bottom line. Representing the company, so you've already got the real villain of the story just kind of under the surface. I'm guessing we all watched the director's cut. Uh, yes. I, I watched the theatrical cut, but I've seen the director's cut so many times that I I know the scenes when you're talking about them. So. Actually, you can yeah briefly talk about what the theatrical cut's like now that you've seen the director's cut so many times. The theatrical cut is a lot pacier, I feel. There are things that I do feel I miss from the director's cut. Um, I feel like um, I spend more time with the characters in the director's cut and there are a few kind of cool scenes like uh, the turret sequence where they set the turrets and the aliens are coming towards them mm. and they're like basically throwing themselves in front of the turrets to you know get rid of all that ammo isn't in the theatrical cut which for me was a bit weird because well, that's a really good scene why would you cut that out <laughs> to me that felt like a great scene but not in there but because the theatrical cut is kind of so pacey, the film just moves along. I looked at my watch and it's like, wow, Jesus, really, two hours have gone already? Mm. felt like an hour. It's so, 17 minutes longer, isn't it, the, uh, the, the yeah. special edition? And, and it's weird how just like little shortcuts um, here and there um, help make a film feel a lot pacier. I don't know which film I prefer. I think I I prefer the director's cut just because there's more of it. There's more interesting stuff. But I, I can see from just like a um, like from an editor's point of view why the theatrical cut is more possibly the superior version simply because it, it, it's more economical with its time. It wastes less time. It just goes from start to finish. So. Yeah, it was interesting seeing that after so long. One key difference between the theatrical and director's cut, um, particularly with the bit with the turrets, uh, where they're mm. setting the turrets up and they're setting out the defences, it completely changes the impression you get of the Marines. In the theatrical cut, they're constantly doing things in a rush. It's always half-assed and they're always kind of incompetent all the way through, uh, yeah. pretty much. But that really establishes that they are actually really kick-ass professional soldiers they really do know what they're doing and they really can yeah. kick some alien butt uh, that was the, the key thing which also saw... makes the aliens more scary because ultimately if the aliens can can dispose of a bunch of half-wits well, well done aliens but if they're actually they're professionals then that, that makes them all the more terrifying absolutely uh, I saw actually saw the theatrical cut the uh, director's cut first I think or certainly the first one I remember seeing I mm. watched the theatrical cut after that and realised what was missing and uh, yeah I was, I was kind of surprised at how how, <laughs> how stupid and, and useless the, the Marines did quite a lot of the way through the film because <laughs> at no point really each of them individually has their moment but at no point do they really look like they know what they're doing apart from when they go in just before I, Spunkmire doesn't get his moment <laughs> well, he no. just finds some spunk and gets eaten well this I, is true <laughs> I would counter that by saying that I do think that some of the Marines come off as professional. It's more the people um, giving orders that come off as idiots in the theatrical cut. Mm. Um, Very specifically, Gorman. Yeah, who's just a complete knob. 
One thing I did notice was that seeing this in Blu-ray for the first time, obviously seeing it in HD for the first time, how sharp and clear everything was and I, I know obviously that is going to be <laughs> a side effect of seeing things in HD um, but it did make what is a pretty old film very comparable with much more recent sci-fi fare and I the, the two that sort of sprang to mind for me were um, the uh, new version of Battlestar Galactica it, all the, um, the spacecraft and everything very much put me in mind of that and um, also the salvage team coming on board kind of made me think of um, Serenity as well. Hmm. I was going to say that as well. It reminded me of the first episode of Firefly, yeah. where you're introduced uh, introduced to like Jane when he's they're trying to carve into a ship that's been abandoned and they're using explosive gel and stuff like that. It's very reminiscent of that. And if they found a uh, a woman in there, that would have been. Yeah, it would have, they'd have had to get her to the nearest place where she could be deeply patronised by the company. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was really kind of impressed with the, with how they managed to match everything up with the uh, the Ridley Scott original. Um, and yet, at the same time, the, the thing that immediately struck me about this, James Cameron has a serious soft spot for uh, deep blues in his... Um, well, not just deep, a, a series of different shades of blues in his direction. Uh, specifically this, T2, The Abyss... Avatar, he's kind of similar to Michael Mann in, in how much he favours blue. Um, and it went from that sort of dirty yellow colours of uh, Ridley Scott's Alien, of deep space, to being much more sort of professional, serious, uh, well, no, serious, it's, all, it's always serious, to being much more sort of professional, a little bit more sort of action movie-oriented sort of blue. I don't know if, if blue represents anything specific, he just uses it a lot in this. I think it's just a very pleasant colour. You never find blue offensive to the eyes. Doesn't sicken. Yeah. Whereas Alien makes you kind of feel a little bit queasy watching the whole thing, especially Alien 3. That's interesting, because I would say almost exactly the opposite. The way that he uses it, and particularly the shades of blue that he uses, um, and you mentioned um, the fact that it comes up in T2 a lot as well, there were so many frames and scenes in this that I was sat there going, yep, that's the same as in T2, that happens yeah. in T2, that looks the same. Even starting with just the, the, the grill effect mm. on the title screen as it, as it fades into Aliens. Um, but the... That's the truck at the beginning of T2. And that's just right, yeah. Straight up to the credits. Exactly. Yeah. We've um, got to do T2 for Gonzo or something. We'll do all the Terminator films for Gonzo very soon. Um, but the the blues that Cameron uses through this, are, they're very metallic and very cold and very. And there is much, a lot of steel in the movie as well. Which there is, and it's it's sort of it's a shade that maybe it's just me, but it just kind of puts my teeth on edge about things. And it's um, the way the aliens are introduced in this, and the the look of them is, I think, much more metallic than in the first one. Mm. Um, and I think that that combines with the colour scheme and, and makes everything look that bit more shiny and artificial. So well, that's a, a continuation of what we started off talking about with the ships and how one is far more organic. It, that's, that's a lot of things that you can say about, the, about Alien uh, as opposed to Aliens is that mm -hmm. it's, it's just more organic in general. And, and like you were saying, Sharon, the, if, it's, if it's more of a steely type thing as opposed to a not exactly a warmer tone, but uh, something that 
that w- didn't come out of a factory, then it it does give kind of a different, um, almost a more clinical uh, cast to it. Mm. There's that lingering shot of uh, Ripley's hand resting on her chest at the beginning, which uh, is from um, the original Alien, and it kind of it's hunched over, so it looks like it is reminiscent of the face hugger, and that gets pulled in again later on when her fingers are dangling down with a cigarette just before Burke comes to see her to tell that the colony has uh, lost contact with them. Um, it's it just kind of just little visual reminder. So then it cuts to the infirmary scene, and she gets told of 57 years, and then there's the dream chest bursting. Now, this would make total narrative sense for you to dispatch Ripley and then have another team sent out. So basically, if Fox got their way and uh, Sigourney Weaver got written out of it, she could maybe turn up for a brief cameo at the beginning and get exploded. Or if, you know, they were even going to quibble over her cameo there, they'd just do an Alien 3 with her. Oh, we found a craft. It's empty, though. There's a dead woman and a cat and then not really look at her properly. But um, at the same time, when you're actually watching it for the first time, I would imagine back in 1986, people actually totally bought that moment for a second and were absolutely filled with horror. Oh, yeah. No, because the way the scene is um, put together, I I feel like you're meant to... I don't know what the trailers were like for this film, so maybe that was revealed to be... Oh, no, 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 she definitely featured in the trailers. All right. Okay. So people knew going in that that was probably a fake out, but the way the scene is set up, you could totally see somebody had no for no familiarity with the film whatsoever being tricked by that scene. Remember that there was no YouTube back in those days. People could just maybe go to the cinema once or twice a year, and they wouldn't have a chance to see the trailers and go. I'm thinking of it from my perspective now. That's the thing. It's weird, isn't it? Because we get exposed to this media every day. We forget. I forget that people didn't have access to that kind of stuff back then. Back when The Phantom Menace came out, I recorded the trailer when it was on The Big Breakfast, and I brought that into college, and we just watched it over and over again, and like, oh, this film's going to be the most awesome film ever! Uh, I doubt it wasn't. Just before the chest-bursting scene, fake out, um, there's that wonderful shot where it's on Ripley's face while she's asleep in the hypersleep chamber, and then it cuts to the Earth, and it fades from her face to the Earth. And it is one, the first of many, many reinforcements that Ripley is the mother. So then when she actually gets through from the dream and then goes back to reality, uh, you see what a ruin her life has become. And that's when you start to really wonder what... I mean, once you, when you see the films repeatedly, you wonder what she could possibly have come back to. I mean, without Newt, she's got... You know, she, she loses her, her, her daughter, retrospectively, and... Um, uh, the, the notion that specifically that her daughter died of old age, even though 66 doesn't seem to be that old, seems actually quite young by today's standards, and she actually looks like, well, a lot older than the average 66-year-old these days. But it's very significant that uh, Ripley has the kind of Ripley Van Winkle thing, where she's been asleep for that long, and, and now nothing she knows is, is still around anymore. She's like Captain America. Hence that 57 years reference in The Ultimates. She has that uh, conversation with the corporate people at uh, that meeting, and um, they're basically talking to her about th- her decision to destroy the Nostromo and how th- they're all concerned about the percentages, the price, how much it costs them to um, 
make that uh, machine, uh, the spaceship, how much the cargo cost. And mm. they're, all they're concerned about is the amount of money that she wasted because she saw a ghost. In their eyes, I think that's how they saw it. So, like, oh, she was a bit paranoid. So she decided to destroy hundreds of millions of you know dollars worth of equipment and um, resources. And so she's in this position now where she can only get like the lowliest of work. Mm. Um, Effectively a forklift driver. Yeah. And, and you know, no offense to forklift drivers out there. I don't even, it's not, it's not so much like forklift driving is a horrible job. It's more that it's wasted potential because you've seen what she's capable of in the, um, first alien film like she is a survivor she's intelligent she's very capable woman and how is she repaid for you know her troubles oh you can do that for a living you can do the lowliest job that nobody wants thanks for uh thanks for all your hard work ripley pat on the head bye bye mm. out the door uh-huh. Her apartment is decorated with bits from uh, inside of an aircraft. They wanted it to feel very, very temporary. So uh, her, her toilet is an airplane toilet. It is it, everything about it is like a cubicle. She's been shunted away into. It's like Corbin Dallas's apartment in um, Fifth Element, only less fun. And she comes back at this point, and she's just a she's a ghost. I, she just there's nowhere for her to fit in. There's nothing for her to go back to. There's nowhere for her to go, and nobody pays attention to her. It's really like she just doesn't quite exist there anymore until they need her. Mm. Yeah, the second they need her and need her advice, they're, they're begging her. There is a lot in this um, beginning part of the film, actually, and I mentioned it um, before, that led me to sort of see the comparisons between this and um, Terminator 2, and very specifically the comparisons between Ripley and Sarah Connor. Um, and they really do build up the um, when she's at the the inquest or the hearing or, or whatever it is, and she's being asked to go over and over the same information again. And she she says to them, "I've been through this already." It parallels very neatly with um, Sarah's interview with uh, Dr. Silverman at the beginning mm. of um, T2, where she says, "You've you've heard this so many times. You know I'm only going to say the same stuff. Why are you making me say it all again?" The dreams that Ripley has, as well, this recurring nightmare that she keeps waking up from, is um, which no one else can share. Exactly, which um, which is. Uh, similar to the, the dream that Sarah has with the uh, the nuclear explosion. The fact that both of them are... The, the thing you mentioned about the idea of, of this woman's voice being silenced, they are trying to bring information to people about something that they just don't want to hear about, and they just keep getting you know, shoved in a cell, shoved in a little apartment. Nobody will, will listen to what it is that they're trying to say. And they both have this overwhelming survivor's guilt albeit that Sarah's survivor's guilt hasn't actually happened yet. She hasn't survived the apocalypse yet, but she knows she will. She's a pre-survivor. Exactly. Um, And it's just, I found it so intriguing to see how the characters, I mean, they're they're very different actresses, but the the characters that they play were so very similar, and I could see if Sigourney Weaver had played Sarah Connor, she would probably have played it quite similarly, and if Linda Hamilton had played Ripley, she probably would have as well. It was quite interesting to, to sort of compare the two. It is important to say that uh, Cameron's viewpoints on the militaria and uh, corporate greed uh, are presented in extremely black-and-white broad brushstrokes in both this and T2 and Avatar. Uh, it, uh, the, you know, the, the corporations are all corporation-y. Uh, the... the the 
Colonel, or was it, what's the name of the uh, guy played by um, Stephen Lang in Avatar? What's his rank? Colonel McScarface. Colonel McScarface. Colonel, <laughs> Mc, Colonel McEvil bastard. He, he is only, he's like, you know, I, I, I'm here to shoot natives and get the job done and fuck anyone who gets in my way. It's, it, he's not even really a character. And uh, all of that basically kind of started here. Uh, T2 actually has a bit more in, in the way of, um, like, for example, it makes Miles Dyson someone who actually regrets what he's, a, you know, he's, he's been uh, leading up to. But, I mean, the, the notion of unobtainium is like James Cameron's like, you people, you're always after something. Well, here's the something you're after. We'll call it unobtainium. And, unfortunately, everyone sort of just sort of jumped on that and said, that's stupid. Your film's stupid. Which, of course, it's, it's just a metaphor, but, unfortunately, everyone took it way too literally. But, um, but they, they all have their roots here. And so when she's at a board meeting, in fact, so many of the bits at the beginning of this film remind me of the, uh, you know, the scientific and military side of Avatar, where the, the humans are going around. Um, in, in a good way, because I like that Avatar reminds me of aliens a little bit. Going back to the scene where uh, Ripley finds out about her daughter dying, yeah. um, I watched the director's cut earlier today and I turned on the deleted scene marker and that is actually a deleted scene that whole scene where she finds out about her daughter yeah, yeah it wasn't in the theatrical release it wasn't in the theatrical release um, with, uh, with Combine saying how, um, how pacey the theatrical release uh, feels that's obviously well that, with that scene not being there that yeah. keeps up the pace and doesn't slow it down whereas the director's cut really sort of wants to focus on that emotional moment when she finds out. Yeah. That's really crucial, though, because that's key yeah. to her relationship with Newt. Yeah. yeah, there is actually a little bit um, when she's speaking with Newt later on, um, just literally a second or two, where she mentions her daughter and the little deleted scene marker comes up. And that's cut out, obviously, in the theatrical release as well, with, with the uh, main scene not being in there. Right. That's what I was talking about when I was speaking about uh, characterization, the lack of it in the theatrical one. Mm. It, yeah. it, it it moves along a much you know better pace, it and it feels like a faster movie, but you miss out on some of those crucial character details that the that crucial seventeen minutes gives you. Yeah. It's so funny that seventeen minutes adds so much to a movie. I find that fascinating. It, it is a significantly better and deeper and more interesting cut. Yeah. Almost nothing that's added to it is completely fatuous, including, of course, everything that happens on LV-421. You don't get any of that in the uh, theatrical version, and, um, but to actually see Newt clean and relatively content with her family, and just to yep. sort of see what that is before it gets shattered... Um, anyone else think that that kid on the big wheel tricycle is referencing The Shining? I made that exact comment yesterday. Yeah. Thank you, Lyra. Sharon said, why would he reference The Shining? No, why wouldn't he reference The Shining? I didn't mean why would he in the sense of, of course he's not. I was just, just asking if there was a specific reason. There doesn't have to be a reason. It's the goddamn Shining. Sorry. I swear to God, that, that Matt can back me up here. This is exactly what I said. I said, he's going to drive down the hallway and there's going to be two little blonde girls standing at the end and they're going to look at each other and then blood. We want to play with this <laughs> Exactly. Two, two, two little chest bursters. Okay, we're getting into a weird area here.
So the hypersleep sequence, purposefully, deliberately reminiscent of the one at the beginning of Alien, uh, although it would appear that the Marines keep their pulse rifles in pret-a-manger fridges. Uh, Anyone else notice the hanging chains? Yeah, very reminiscent of the first film. In fact, a lot of the um, choices that Cameron makes are quite reminiscent of the first film. The beginning of the film, in fact, feels very similar to the beginning of the first Alien Mm. and stuff like that. It's weird because later on, I feel like he establishes his own identity uh, with this film. It Mm. almost feels like he's easing people in. Yeah. Okay, it's like, okay, you remember the old Alien, and I'm going to be loyal to it. Don't worry, guys. But as the movie changes, it's like, okay, this is its own thing. It has its own style and its own personality. And I, and I like that he's easing people into that. It, it shows that he's respecting the source material, but also I, I want to put my own stamp on this film. Mm. But yes, anyone notice the, the little um, 80s executive toys, the sort of spinning uh, steel ball thingies, uh, reminiscent of the drinking bird that uh, turned up in the beginning of Alien. They're like little things and set designs and dressings and things just putting it around there to make you just somewhere in the back of your mind tie it up with Alien. Um, and interestingly enough, you know that the pods that they've got there, the, the hypersleep pods, mm-hmm. there's actually only four of them because of the budgetary restrictions, they positioned a mirror to make it appear that there were 12. Clever. That is clever. That is very clever. And they all opened at exactly the same time, because if they opened at different times, you'd, you'd see that there was an obviously different um, sequence to it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a great way of uh, establishing space with like an old like magician's trick. I love it when they do stuff like that. They are the most impractical uh, stasis pods in the world, though. Because they open up and basically form an archway, which I would inevitably bang my head on every time I got up. Yep. Ridiculous. However, the moment they get up, suddenly Alien starts becoming immensely quotable. Now, I don't know if you guys remember the Predator podcast, the amount of quoting that went on there. (laughs) So, similarly, any time we uh, quote Aliens... Take a drink, guys. <laughs> awesome. Everyone's going to die drinking. Not you guys. Oh. <laughs> oh. I misunderstood. No, no, listeners. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it immediately starts. And it, it's funny. It's, it's well-written. It's well-delivered. It's tight. And you start to immediately like these guys, even though you start to label, like, this guy's a bozo. This guy's cool. This girl's tough. And the guy from Halo. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, seriously, he is just Johnson. Or Johnson is just him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a poem you're talking about. Now, that guy actually was uh, in the military, and it really shows him that yeah, he's, he is an inspiring presence for, the, for these guys. But basically, their the unit is only as strong as their commanding officer. And unfortunately, he dies pretty early. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, technically, no. Hang on. The Sergeant Dietrich, go dead, man. Her lifestyle's a real low, but they ain't dead. Take a shot. So it goes straight back to the military agenda and the notion that Cameron is making this Vietnam in space is hammered home repeatedly. These guys are super brash, very arrogant. They don't even listen to Ripley when she's giving her debriefing. Like That could have saved lives. Not all of them, clearly, because they were totally outmatched. But no one gave her the time of day. No one listened to her. And they just sort of went in, they got this military superiority, and when Hudson's reeling off the lists of various weapons they've got, it's 
it's like the, the GIs getting thrown into Vietnam. They had, they had military superiority, and they were up against people who really knew the terrain and were connected locally, and they got completely torn to pieces. That's what I'm saying. Nobody listens to Ripley. It's a big problem. Yeah. They don't even listen to Ripley in Alien 3. They don't listen to Ripley in Alien 4. You'd think somebody eventually would figure out that you need to listen to her at least a little bit. <laughs> and they didn't listen to Sigourney Weaver say that the Alien vs. Predator movies would be stupid, and they turned out to be stupid. All the way through the film, she's trying to tell uh, the authorities the danger, inherent danger of the aliens and about the aliens. Nobody believes her at every point. She's completely ignored, and it's uh, kind of a similar idea to Cassandra from Greek mythology, who's mm. cursed to to tell the truth always and to never be believed. It must be a very frustrating um, existence. Also, like Sarah Connor as well, then. Very much so. Alien. She thought they said illegal alien signed up. <laughs> Anytime, anywhere. All right, sweethearts, you heard the man, and you know the drill. Assholes and elbows. Come here. Come here. Okay, right. I did fall in love with the dropship when I was a kid because I saw this when I was about 12 and I still had a big old box of Lego at the time and I think I made like eight different iterations on the dropship just trying to perfect uh, what I could do. I just like, it, It's just such an awesome little... It's kind of like the best um, aspects of an Apache helicopter and Thunderbird 2. It looks like it's got a lot of firepower as well. And it's weird that you never get to see it. You get uh, get to see it in action because it's got those um, things that fold out on the on the side of the ship, and it's got loads of missiles on it. And I, it's weird that they um, they went to the effort of designing this thing, and never really you never really get to see it in action, as it no. were. Well, that's it's perfectly it, it's a perfect example that they are over-equipped to deal with a completely different kind of enemy. This is kind of, this kind of reminds me of World War Z, mm, um, yes. the battle they have in World War Z, where they got all this technology and all this state-of-the-art stuff, which is completely useless against the enemy they're about to face. That is, they've got to be they, related. Land Warrior is like those cameras they've got in their helmets. Yeah, and and like Land Warrior, it, it just serves to make everyone panic and, and mm. even. Where's the pawn? Where's the pawn? Yeah. And, I mean, if you were facing the aliens, for example, and you knew more about the aliens, you wouldn't have explosive rounds in your guns like the pulse mm. rifles have. You'd have bullets that simply just penetrate and do damage, but don't spray acid blood in your face like <laughs> explosive rounds do. Mm. Um, or they, didn't get, better. Uh, they didn't get briefed on um, the, the aliens themselves. No one ever told them they've got acid for blood. Now, technically... They didn't know for sure, because Ripley never actually encountered that, uh, literally, in the original Aliens. It was, the first person to find out was, um, was Drake. They knew that the um, facehuggers had acid for blood, but there was no specific reason uh, to, to know for certain that the xenomorphs uh, had acid for blood. Or, or you know, other things like it hangs around on the ceiling. It can blend in with its environment. 
to be fair, there was no way they could have known that. Um, yeah. That's completely new. Yeah. But still. Oh, another bit of kit that's worth mentioning, the motion tracker. That is just such a brilliant piece of kit for building up tension. I can, I'm going to see if I can get the uh, sound effects on here now, but there's just this uh, sense of... Mini, mini, so there is an app available on the up. Android Marketplace that uh, will make your phone into a motion tracker. Awesome. awesome. Down- downloading now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on, does it actually track motion? No, sadly not. <laughs> it's not quite that, that it's not good. For 69p, uh, I want it to track motion. No, it's free, so I didn't complain too much. It's inside the complex. No, no, it ain't you. They're inside, inside the perimeter. They're in here. This signal's weird. Must be some interference or something. There's movement all over the place. Movement. Signal's clean. Range 20 meters. 18. 17 meters. 15 meters. 13 meters. That's right outside the door. Yeah, this is a big fucking signal. 12 meters. 11. 10. 9 meters. 8 meters. 7. 6. It's reading right, man. Look. 5 meters, man. 4. What the hell? There they go over there! Get There's a sort of a sensory memory thing, so if you actually hear that, you start immediately flashing back to aliens now, so that's, that's no wonder they use it in all of the uh, alien-related games. It's kind of a crappy motion tracker, though. Yeah. I mean... We've, we've got better motion trackers now. Okay, Newt is a, a, a step up for the uh, series, actually. It introduces the key elements of the, the fact that the Marines seem to know what they're doing to begin with, and you think to yourself, actually, they, they've got the firepower... Whatever's in there, they can probably deal with it. Um, at least they'll, you know, they'll they'll bust some heads before they get overwhelmed. So you've got that aspect of it, and then suddenly they introduce Newt, and you put a child in the middle of this situation, which was a very brave thing to do because the propensity for possibility of being, having a really irritating kid was w- exceptionally high, and it very rarely works. But Newt, as a child of war sells that so very well. Carrie Henn, um, I don't think she did any acting after this significantly. According to Internet Movie Database, no, she did not. Yeah, I've seen her in, in interviews later, so unlike Carol Ann uh, from uh, Poltergeist, she lived, thankfully. It's that kind of completely blasted look about her, and um, from the sounds of it, James Cameron wasn't overly mean to her like he was with everybody else, so uh, she kind of got off lightly. But, uh, I probably I, would have hit him if he'd started being mean to the kid. Yeah. Try this. It's a little hot chocolate. There you go. Whoop. That good, huh? Uh-oh. I made a clean spot here. Now I've done it. Guess I'll have to do the whole thing. Hard to believe there's a little girl under all this. And a pretty one, too. You don't talk much, do you? Oh, I don't know how you managed to stay alive. But you're one brave kid, Rebecca. What'd you say? Okay, so Carrie hands Newt, and automatically this starts 
there's a button marked Mother for Ripley, and it starts jabbing away at it. And every time she's in the scene with Newt, it's just like tapping, 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 until Ripley is the all-commanding Mother. Her delivery is actually really a little bit frightening at times. You know, she the, the, she sort of she flits between you know being completely blasted and blown out, uh, uh, and sort of you know it won't make any difference to just being a kid who's being badgered by adults. Like, they're dead, all right? Can I go now? And it's like she's sort of... uh, Her mind has been sort of broken up and and the little bits are swirling around trying to remind her how it was to be social because she's been hounded and uh, witness to the most horrific, unimaginable situation for well over two weeks now. And... um, has, you know, is malnourished and lives in this horrible squalid nest where she's just thrown everything she could gather down in one, one place. She's got no plan aside from just grabbing what she can. Um, she's, she is feral at this point. And I, I, I think that's why I like the character so much because it's a child that's um, believably responded to the the scenario she's in Mm. Uh, so many kids in action movies are like you know Jurassic Park 3 yeah like giving their funny little quips and being charming and being oh look oh look at the cute little dinosaurs oh la 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 um but like Newt is completely destroyed like I feel like Ripley um part of her role is kind of to repair Newt's mind almost Mm. to remind her yeah there are people here that care about you. I guess we're not going to be leaving now, right? I'm sorry, Newt. You don't have to be sorry. It wasn't your fault. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we going to do now? What are we going to do? Maybe we could build a fire, sing a couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that? We better get back, because it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. Mostly. So, Stan Winston's Creature Shop, The New Aliens, and the environmental design. Uh, they got rid of the uh, carapace of the, uh, the alien's head, that sort of that smooth dome-like thing that made it look more penis-y. Uh, it, it looks a bit less H.R. Giga designed as a result, because they refined it, but thus it, it looks more Cameron-ish. Uh, I don't know if that even makes any sense, but the ridges in the head were designed so that the stuntmen would be able to move around through the environments quicker without accidentally cracking a uh, a perfectly domed head. It would allow for more, more damage to be sustained without it showing up on camera. And it also shows in the movie because they are a lot more mobile, these aliens. Mm. Mm. Um, in the first alien, they didn't actually show the alien that much. And whenever they did show it, it was just like a quick flash. So I, I, I bet that's probably one of the reasons why it's filmed that way, because... If that uh, thing moves the wrong way, suddenly the costume's broken and they have to spend loads of money, you know, fixing it or making a new one. So it was, I, I kind of prefer the dome head, um, the, the smooth head, uh, because I just think it's more aesthetically interesting, but I understand that makes sense having the ridge heads that they only appeared again with the ridge heads in one film, the worst one. Yep, AVPR. Uh, I actually prefer, in some ways, the the more organic look to the the alien, the creature mm. from Aliens. Um, the 
the smooth carapace. I don't know, it looked a bit plastic uh, in some ways, and the, the creature from Aliens looks like an animal. It completely looks like an animal, mm. uh, which, I don't know, it's, it's a personal aesthetic choice maybe, but... I mean, maybe if you counted up the screen time between Alien, it, it must amount to less than a minute, and in this there's several minutes worth of Aliens on screen. Yeah. So a more percentage of likelihood of it looking a bit rubbery. That's actually an interesting point because it's um, we, we talked before about how the first movie in general is more organic looking and the second movie in general is more processed. So if you take the reverse of that as the as the aliens, if they're more processed looking the first one and more organic looking the second one, it just makes them more out of place and kind of scarier for that. I, I think for me, just to say why I prefer the the carapace in the uh, first one is because just it looks more like an insect to me yeah. whereas the ridges and the quite weird design of the ones in aliens feels more reptilian um, mm. and I, because they were they have that kind of insectoid um, life cycle it felt it felt more um, it felt more, oh, despite the fact it's completely fantastical, it felt more real to me that it would be have more insectoid characteristics than reptilian, but that's just me. Oh, no, I know, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I, a personal, you know, a personal tasting for me. The, yeah. the aliens in, in the second film aren't particularly insectoid. The way they move, they're much more like a, a, a lizard of some kind. They're, they're crawling around on all fours they don't look anything like insects in that film and I think that the it's just a personal choice on my part I, I prefer the look of them from, from the second film but th there's not a lot of differences just mainly that carapace really the molecular acid oxidizes after the creature's death completely neutralizing Bishop you know that's very interesting but it doesn't really get us anywhere does it I'm trying to figure out what we're dealing with here let's go through it again they grab the colonists, they move them over there, and they immobilize them to be hosts for more of these. Which would mean that there would have to be a lot of these parasites, right? One for each colonist, that's over a hundred at least. Yes, that follows. But each one of these things comes from an egg, right? So who's laying these eggs? I'm not sure. It must be something we haven't seen yet. Maybe it's like an ant hive. Bees, man. Bees have hives. You know what I mean. There's like one female that runs the whole show. Yes, the queen. Yeah, the mama. She's badass, man. I mean big. These things ain't ants. I know that. that. James Horner's brass. Anybody count how many times James Horner goes... <laughs> you know, the sting. Where anything jumps out and he goes... <laughs> it's approximately. Please include that somewhere in the podcast. I will not. It's approximately <laughs> 722 times per minute. That, that's just a guess. I was keeping count. <laughs> I, lo I lost count when I hit 10,000. Uh, no, uh, it, it's it's overused a little bit, but to, it's overused to great effect. If that makes any goddamn sense, you're, you're totally on edge. And there was actually a, a, a point I had to jostle Sharon to stop her talking during the bit where um, Hicks and uh, Ripley were just trying to get into the lift and the lift doors won't close and then the alien comes jumping through and he goes <laughs> and <laughs> sorry kind of riffing on Jerry Goldsmith's soundscape from the original James Horner kind of punctuates and gives sound effects to what's actually going on 
Horner apparently did not have a fantastic time of making this. It was very down to the wire, and he had very little time to actually put it together. He requested several more weeks uh, when they were close to the end, and uh, Cameron and Heard said, you can't have several more weeks, you can do it now. To which point, I think he almost walked off completely. Basically, Cameron uh, weighed it up, and it was like, right, we can either get someone on to start from scratch and still have to keep to this ridiculous deadline, or I can be really, really grovelly to James Horner and try and get him back. And he got him back, but they didn't work with each other again till Titanic, when um, James Horner's score for Braveheart caught Cameron's attention. And they both made a large amount of money from the soundtrack, which was Oscar nominated. Oh, I think it won, didn't it? Um... But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's got this real kind of bombast to it, which is... is it, it, and the, the constant military drums and things and the military trumpets, you know, it, it perfectly sets the tone for a completely different kind of film to the original. Well, it, that's the thing. The, the, the tone of the film is much more... Um, I, I describe it... I, I'm tempted to describe it as an action movie, but I think it's more accurate to describe it as a, a thriller. So it's not so much concentrating on action but more mm. tension uh, not action, um, uh, horror it, the first film is about dread and building horror and stuff like that whereas this one is much more about tension mm. and like building up moments and then exploding um, you know you know, slow moments, quiet moments and then explosions, loads of fast paced like action happening everywhere mm. um, and, and the, the score reflects that there are moments where it's like just building tension and then squee <laughs> um, I think you mean <laughs> you sound like Tim Minchin when you do that and there's um, the, the I remember actually again from the James Horner situation uh, for the very end sequence he was given one day to uh, do the Ripley versus the Queen music and uh, he, he got it done and he gave it to Cameron and Cameron then said right I've completely edit- re-edited the scene again change it make it match again so basically the way a, f- uh, a score is done the artist watches what's going on on the screen listens to how it's going gets the tempo exactly right and then he has beats depending on what is going on on the screen it's not like Lego you can't just reorganise and go well I have a beat there a beat there and a beat there it has a flow to it it is organic and Cameron basically just threw it back in his face and said look I've reorganised it like Lego you do the same with the music you've got half a day but I can't do that and that was why they had their falling out I didn't realise until watching that how close to the wire a score gets finished especially back in those days this has happened um, in with other people as well. I think something similar happened with uh, Sam Raimi and I. why have I forgotten his name? Danny Elfman? Danny Elfman, yes. Something similar happened with them on Spider-Man 2. Two. uh, Because Danny Elfman didn't come back for uh, Spider-Man 3 because he didn't like working with Sam Raimi. Didn't give him enough uh, creative freedom and time to do his job properly. Is that why the score for Spider-Man 2 is basically the score for Spider-Man 1 with a Doctor Octopus suite added? I, th- I think so. I, th- I think Danny Elfman had a miserable time doing the score for Spider-Man nice. 2. So- We're on express elevator to hell. Going down. Movement. Signal's clean. Range 20 meters. There's movement all over the place. They're closing. It's game time. 
maybe you haven't been keeping up on current events. We just got our ass kicked, pal. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. The only way to be sure. My mommy always said there were no monsters. No real ones, but there are. The snafu. That's uh, for folks. Uh, anyone know what snafu stands for? Situation, uh, situation normal, normal all, all fucked up. up. Yeah, uh, it's, it's an American military phrase used repeatedly in Vietnam because there were so goddamn many of them. Um, this is when they're uh, in the middle of the nest. They don't show up on motion trackers at all. And then an alien goes, nah, and everything goes to shit. And Vasquez and Drake start firing off their fucking guns because they haven't been told why they can't fire off their guns. And all of this seems to but, but boil down to the fact that no one has been briefed properly on what they're doing. And uh, when it comes down to it, everyone starts dying and being, uh, and being snatched away. And <laughs> Gorman says this classic line to Apon, who's trying desperately to listen to him. I want you to lay down a suppressing fire. And he can't even hear it. It's like, you don't even know what you're talking about at this point. You are going to the... the textbook and going, right, uh, when, when there is a snafu, you lay down a suppressing fire and retreat. And that is basically what you do. If there had been another opponent on the other end of the line, someone who had been repeatedly in combat situations, someone cool-headed, they could have pulled a lot more of them out there than what they ended up with. Yeah, again, it comes down to, to leadership. It's, uh, Apone relies on, on his officer to give him orders, which he then relays to his troops. Mm. who then rely on what he's telling them to get out of a bad situation. Uh, because the orders aren't coming down, it's just effectively nonsense at this point. It's just, as you say, murmurings from the book. Um, the whole thing falls apart and, and everyone gets torn to pieces. If the uh, first link in a steel chain is made of sponge cake, it ain't holding. Well, exactly. I mean, when um, uh, Vasquez and Drake um, fi- uh, start firing their, their uh, rifles again, in, in direct uh, contravention of orders, it's because the, the orders weren't really proper orders. They were just kind of, they were just, oh, don't do this. It wasn't yeah, actually. they weren't explained. There's no authority behind yeah. the order, and an order with no authority isn't an order. It's merely a suggestion. And that's where it all falls apart. And it's Could you simply give me a favour and not fire off any uh, uh, rounds? What the hell are we supposed to use, man? Harsh language? And yeah, they're, they're, they're not told why. Well, that's it. And they're not told what they should do either because they've got, what, two flamethrowers between the lot of them? Hmm. They, you know, don't fire your guns. Don't fire your, your rifles. And no grenades. What do we do then? Don't fire your rifles. Do this instead. That's, well, that's simple as that. The second they find out about that, pull out. Think about yeah, it. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I mean, yeah. going into that situation... Well, they've got knives situation. and sharp sticks back in the APC. They <laughs> going into that situation not knowing the environment they're about to enter into is just ridiculous. Yeah. Like, the, the, their commanding officer is an idiot because... Nobody just sends troops in willy-nilly into an area that you haven't properly investigated beforehand. And they have the resources to do it. Ah, just that guy is a moron. Just kill him, Ripley. Jesus. The problem they've got is they are, the, the, the squad are professionals. That's what they do. They go into situations where it's not completely known and they are experienced, they're professional, they're a good team. The problem is that Gorman was reassigned to them deliberately was how I figured it he assigned them so deliberately so they all die which means that they can then get a couple of bodies that are infected with aliens back through quarantine and the company gets what it wants 
So if they sent a, a, a good officer, which is what they should have done, um, they'd have kicked us, got out of there, and everyone would have been, or the, the survivors would have been fine, which is not oh, the company wanted. You're right, Gorman's handpicked to fuck it up. Absolutely. He's, he's completely. He's I never tweeted that before. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I completely didn't. <laughs> I just like. Well, there's, oh, there's really no is. other reason he would do it because uh, the military they they send in this this crack squad of of uh, basically special operations troops who Possibly are known for being overly uh, arrogant and brash. Yeah, they're not going to send them in with a I mean wet behind the ears idiot like Gorman. Yeah. Unless they've been told you know something's come down from higher up. You know. It's the only explanation why Gorman would be there and not a more experienced officer. He's somebody who would let Burke tell him what to do. Exactly, yeah. I have a question. Surely they had a black ops team on file that they could just say, look, we need some aliens. It's that simple. They fucked our colony, but we need to use them as a weapon. Just be straight up front with them about it. But of course, then you've got no movie. Because Ripley would be like, no! <laughs> it's all insidious. And again, it's like, you, Mr. Company Man, all you care about is money. And you've got Burke right there with his stupid collar, just so that you can hate someone very specific. Also, um, Burke actually says why they couldn't do that. Because as soon as you do everything out in the open, you can't patent anything. They need to sneak it back so nobody uh, else knows about it. So that they can get their full percentage. Yeah. Like I said, Cameron has an axe to grind about American big business, very clearly in this. And there was a lot of that in the 80s. It was all like sort of pointing out corporate greed over and over again. Everyone was like, yeah, 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 let me go see another movie about that. Take my money. There was somebody in America last week, actually, I can't remember who it was, but he was basically saying that the reason for the economic meltdown is because of corporation tax, and the only possible way to restart the economy is to have corporations not have to pay any tax at all. Now that you mention it, Matt, it sounds more and more like World War Z. More and more I think about it. It's, it, yeah. Look, those two specimens are worth millions to the bioweapons division, right? Now, if you're smart, we can both come out of as heroes, and we will be set up for life. You're crazy, Bert. Do you know that? Do you really think you can get a dangerous organism like that past ICC quarantine? How can they impound it if they don't know about it? They will know better, Burke. For me, just like they'll know that you were responsible for the deaths of 157 colonists. Wait a second. You sent them to that ship. You're wrong. I just checked the colony log. Directive dated 61279, signed Burke, Carter J. You sent them out there and you didn't even warn them. Why didn't you warn them, Burke? Okay, look. What if that ship didn't even exist? Did you ever think about that? I didn't know. So now if I went and made a major security situation out of it, everybody steps in, administration steps in, and there's no exclusive rights for anybody. Nobody wins. So I made a decision, and it was wrong. It was a bad call, Ripley. It was a bad call. Bad call? Right. These people are dead, Burke! Don't you have any idea what you've done here? Well, I'm gonna make sure that they nail you right to the wall for this. You're not gonna sleaze your way out of this one. Right to the wall. Ripley, I, you know, I expected more from you. I thought you'd be smarter than this. I'm happy to disappoint you. And then there were eight. Gorman still alive, Burke, Hicks, Hudson, Vasquez, Ripley, Newt. And Bishop. And there's that bit where they're sort of counting up all of the uh, stuff. And Newt starts playing with a grenade. He's like, don't touch that. 
dangerous, honey. Now, if this had been a documentary, the second he finished saying that, she'd have started touching the grenade again. Would you? I, did you hear what I just said? Don't touch it. It's a grenade. Yes, that's a helmet. You can play with that. That's fine. <laughs> so yeah. So then there's the extended siege with the turrets uh, again, and it, it's it again. It's ramping up the tension, and they've only got what they've got uh, got available to them. And it's a kind of an analog of the bit after the uh, chestbusters first come out, and Brett's disappeared, and they're trying to work out what the hell to do. And then Ripley finds out about the whole the insidious plan of Burke, which doesn't make any sense, and is crazy, and is so fraught with danger. But then again. What do they know about it? That it can, it killed the entire crew of the Nostromo, but I suppose if they send in... that Statistically, it's likely that they would have succeeded, but they don't. So Burke is unfortunately yet another bullet point on the financial sheet himself. And then there's a situation and thought a bunch of basically pilots and, and miners and engineers yeah. died, but one of them managed to kill this thing. So... Yeah. It can't be that bad, surely. They were just a bunch of unprepared, normal people. Whereas this lot, kick-ass Marines, they can cope with anything. So I, I just, But you don't want them to cope with anything. You want them to get face-hugged. Well, this is true, but that's why, that's why the plan was what it was. Um, oh, so, yeah, they sent in Gorman for the, to be the weak link. Yeah, it wasn't a case of these people are going to get... They didn't want them to get completely wiped out. Yeah. They wanted, you know... Yeah. Just enough ineptitude to make sure that there was a snafu and that they would come back with aliens on board. Yeah, you need them to actually get the job done first before you shoot them out the airlock or whatever it is you're going to do to them. I I do wonder if um, this whole plan about going and getting the alien um, was more from Burke than from the company itself. Because if you think about it, in the first one, they programmed Ash to do exactly what they wanted done. Mm. Um, If the company had had its full weight behind this particular expedition, surely they would have found some way to get instructions into Bishop. Yeah. Yeah, because basically Bishop is, the whole time, and this is, leads on very neatly to Bishop, um, you you don't trust him because you're with Ripley. You're like, oh, I've, I've seen what these fucking things can do. And he's played by Lance Henriksen, who looks and sounds dodgy. He's got the deepest voice for a thin white man in the world. <laughs> He's got those great big eyes, and he looks, so you know, a little pe- like an android. Yeah, yeah. He he looks like a, a genuine robot, and and he he looks ever so slightly off and and a bit too haggard, and yet he's got an innocence about him. Uh, when you find, when when Bishop plays himself out fully, he's 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 affable and he's likable. He's not very likable, but he maintains virtues which are rarely present in fully rounded human beings because of his innocence. Well, somebody's going to have to go out there. Take a portable terminal, go out there and patch in manual. Oh, yeah, sure. With those things running around, you can count me out. Yeah, I guess we I'll can go. just count you out of everything. That's go. right, man. Hey, why don't you go, man? I'll go. What? I'll go. I mean, I'm the only one qualified to remote pilot the ship anyway. Yeah, right, man. Bishop should go. Good idea. Believe me, I'd prefer not to. I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid. The Face Huggers. This shares similar lines with Jurassic Park, or Jurassic Park shares similar lines with this, whether that's because of the book written by Michael Crichton um, or Steven Spielberg taking his cues from aliens. You start off terrified of the aliens, the big crazy creatures, uh, and you were scared of the Face Hugger in the first film, but they were very much a sort of, they get you, you're done. 
that's it. But in this, there's the notion of struggling with a face hugger. So when you see the overturned canisters and the absolute silence in the room and Ripley says to Newt, we're in trouble. And it pulls all the music out and there's no more ramping up of tension. He's just looking around the place. And when that fucking thing strikes, it's the most terrifying thing in all of these films. This one bit with the two face huggers is scarier than anything else. Because suddenly it helps the anti. It's not just that the alien might get you and it does whatever it does to you. We still don't know what the alien does to you, but it's not pleasant. We know exactly what the facehugger can do to you. And suddenly Ripley and Newt are in danger of that. And suddenly James Cameron has you by both balls. And you're like, okay, right, I'm paying close fucking attention. And that, just, oh, that scene is masterful. I love this bit. I'm I'm just curious. Uh, is anyone here an arachnophobe? Yep. Yes. yes. Because I feel like that scene specifically uh, plays on people's fear of spiders because of and the way kids. the uh, the face huggers move. It's yeah. it's very spider like, and the way they strike as well. If you've ever seen tarantulas mm. um, strike their prey in nature, they have that kind of outstretched arms, like grab onto the prey, much yeah. like the way the face huggers do to your face. Oh, it's the um, worst as- aspect, actually, now that you mention it, of spiders, scorpions, and snakes, snakes. which always go for the goddamn yeah. face as well. Yeah. And that boom! Because the there's tail is bit... very much like a coiled muscle, like a snake Absolutely. as well. There's one bit where it crawls along, you see the, 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 the actual body of the face of it, which is exactly like a spider, and then it cuts back, and then you've got um, just the tail disappearing. It just looks exactly like a, a snake. It's bloody horrifying. Absolutely mm. awful. And it's also, it's like, uh, this, especially when it starts coming up for Newt, the second one, it's like this horrible, creeping old man's hand and a strangling tail. It, oh. I, remember, of course, in the first one, the facehuggers don't move. I mean, it, the, this one facehugger springs out from the egg, and that's it. Basically, apart from being on cane, it's dead. So it's, it's kind of like, right, well, fear of, of that over with. But suddenly, this thing is terrifying. And it's, it's like, as I said, Jurassic Park, you've been scared of the T-Rex the whole time, suddenly Spielberg brings up the Raptors and it darts it up to 11. is absolutely a good thing because basically after this point it doesn't stop moving it only stops moving when Ripley pauses and the tension is ramped up even higher so it's, it's this is the crest of the, uh, the the big one for the roller coaster on this one with the escape and uh, Paul Hudson I mean okay we can briefly talk about uh, our other characters here Hudson is a dog this guy throughout the whole film is barking really really loudly and he wears every emotion he has on his sleeve and uh, he's perfectly exemplary of the arrogance of the Marines, and without him, the film would feel that much emptier. He's also kind of, he is the nerd of the group. He's the tech head. I was going to say, it's the first time watching it uh, last night that it's really struck me, because I've seen this film several times in the past, but he is, he's a geek. He's the ADD kid with all the electronics knowledge, and he's not... 
as um, marine-like, if you like, as the rest of them. He, you know, he doesn't follow the orders and he doesn't, um, you know, do all the saluting and everything. And quite frankly, I, I was sat there wondering how he'd got to this point. That bit where um, uh, a pwn calls him out and get over here. And I'm, Hudson, come here. Why is he still in the squad? Surely they'd have kicked him out months ago. Here's how you get out of this chicken shit outfit. Keep talking. As well as Sigourney Weaver's astonishing turn as Ripley in these films, it's important not to undervalue Jeanette Goldstein as Vasquez. She's not the least bit maternal. She doesn't take shit off anybody. Impulsive, rebellious, she's coded male, and specifically coded to that of a male hero, at least from an 80s action movie. And then there's Michael Biehn as Hicks, showing us what Kyle Reese would be like if he wasn't traumatised. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking last night. <laughs> he's, he's, if, if this was a parallel universe where that particular war didn't happen and Kyle Reese just got to be born and grow up and join the military like any normal person, if that doesn't sound completely weird, then <laughs> it, it would be the same guy. And in it's, The Abyss, he's like Kyle Reese and, and mental, more mental, but way worse. <laughs> And uh, in The Rock, he's more like Hicks, but he's a bit older. It's, so what we're essentially saying here... Michael Bain does Bain not exactly act. have a range. But he's really good at the, the military roles he plays. And, and no, Hicks is a likeable guy, and he's got that twinkle in his eye, and he's got that slight, I'm not sure if I trust you thing, and then you realise that you should totally have trusted him from the beginning, much like Bishop. Um, do you know who Michael Bain replaced uh, to the point where it was actually almost about to start filming? James Remar. Yeah. Harry in Dexter. I can't even imagine that film. Yeah. Oh, interesting. You actually see James Remar in when they're entering the the hive. Seriously? It's actually James Remar's back, not Michael. Oh. Because they'd already filmed certain bits of it, so. But so they literally had stuff. armor, so he looks exactly the same. Yeah. And interestingly enough, on the armor, they gave the actors their all of their body armor and said. Just Go, go nuts on it, decorate it uh, however you like. And of course, Michael Bean, being the only one who didn't actually get to personalise his armour, ended up with a whopping great heart on his chest <laughs> with a padlock on it. It's like, yeah, please shoot me right there. Thanks, James. <laughs> uh, anyone else notice that the bishop mentioned he was a Hyperdyne model? Kind of yep. like the Cyberdyne? Cyberdyne, yeah. yeah. Oh dear. Yep. The also, they have um, phase plasma rifles. Oh, yeah. I, they I don't, don't mention the range, but... Probably about 40 watts. Yeah. <laughs> also, when the dropship goes into the atmosphere, I, I only noticed this uh, before, it, it's so poorly... Mo- that is one of the only bits of ropey model work in the entire thing. It's like it's going through the clouds, and there's this sort of like wobbly little model in the front there. It looks like Falcor in Neverending Story. <laughs> <laughs> you expect Ripley to be on the tip of the nose going, Yeah! <laughs> Five by five. Yeah! <laughs> anyway, as we mentioned in the uh, Batman episode, most of the uh, Hive stuff and everything inside the actual complex was filmed in Battersea Power Station. This is why it looks so absolutely authentic, because it was actually a real station and a real place. It feels less like a set as a result. And there's a lot of uh, recurring themes of wetness and cold and ruin and despair. It's like the second that these alien creatures get in... Um, the notion of anything that humans hold on to which combats despair, you know, art or love, just sort of goes out the window and it all becomes this desperate survival scramble. 
Not that there was much of that before when the colonists were there anyway. It kind of has like an artificial swamp feel to it, mm. if that makes sense. Like, it, it, it's kind of this combination of... We, we talked about this on the previous film, the combination of organic and artificial. And it, it, it feels like... You know the way swamps are, where it's very hard to see very far in front of you. Mm. There's all sorts of dangly things all around you. It's very damp very dark there is loads of water and like resources you could use but it's all funny and if you drink the water you might be sick because it's been (laughs) contaminated and stuff like that it's all chaotic and muggy and grubby and disgusting looking yeah oh actually one thing i want to mention when it there's a shot of when they're on the siege and they've uh, sort of done a head count and they're sort of trying to work it out just before the turret guns bit. There's a shot of the station of the window, I believe, and the shutters are slowly going down. And it looks a little like, and I believe they've done the same uh, trick with it, like a shot in Alien where to show, because they didn't have CGI or chroma key in, uh, in such a good... Yeah, they didn't have CGI or chroma key in the same way back in the day. To show Lambert walking around in the cockpit of a model, which is obviously many, many times too small to put a human in, they put a, a monitor on the inside of the model and showed Veronica Cartwright wandering around behind it. Now that is just brilliant in terms of corner cutting, and I think they did it as well in this. Watch out when next time you're watching Alien, you'll spot that. At some point, someone gets a printout uh, in the uh, film, and it's on a goddamn daisy wheel piece of paper. <laughs> like, it's good to know that they went back to that after hundreds of years of not needing it. <laughs> You didn't think, folks, that we would be beyond fucking daisy wheels in 200 years' time? They were the height of technology! Oh, and the other thing uh, regarding tech was uh, the APC itself. It was actually a tug from an airport, uh, which I think it weighed something like 70 tons, and they took out 35 tons worth of stuff, so it was basically hollow inside, and you could get maybe two or three people in there. Uh, but it was so heavy that the most of the set, and well, most of Battersea Power Station couldn't actually support it. And there's a bit uh, where the APC comes barreling down the hall and they'd arranged cameras in front of it so that they could film it coming towards the camera. And Cameron, as a last minute thing, said, just get the camera guys out of the way there, just in case. And the guys got out of the way and the APC ploughed through the cameras and, and crushed through the wall. It would have killed all of the cameramen had he not moved them out of the way, because the brakes failed. So that thing was death on wheels. Apparently they had to cut the roof off it for filming, because uh, originally it had, a, it had a solid roof, um, but it kept filling it with smoke when they yes, were filming the escape, and people were fine. starting to choke, and uh, there was a severe danger of uh, <laughs> serious injury, so they had to That's chop the roof off the top. Yeah. Uh, so was, the smoke would get out. Uh, one question Sharon asked, when uh, Bishop got into that big pipe, why was he breathing so hard? Why was he breathing at all? He's a robot. Yes, no, but robot, Lance isn't. Hendrickson isn't. Uh, <laughs> so. But they, they could just have taken the breathing out of the sound. Oh, true. Yeah, true. I prefer the term an official person myself. As I understood it, they're not, they're not robots as such. They're, they're effectively artificial biological creatures. Mm. So they, they have lungs, they have digestive systems and all the rest of it, uh, circulatory systems, sorry, etc. Same as a human would do, so their, their heart rate would elevate as they, did, as they exerted themselves. Yeah. My theory they was that... They exerted themselves a lot more than a human would. My theory was that they'd been programmed to do everything that a human could to make them as close to... Well, basically, so that they wouldn't end up in the uncanny valley. And it's like, Bishop, do you know why I hate you? You don't breathe. 
Uh, also, special mention must be here for the M41A pulse rifle, which for the longest time was my favourite weapon in a movie ever. It is awesome. Possibly excluding the uh, uh, lightsaber. It's made with... Uh, anyone know how they put this together? It's a Tommy gun. Yep. With, uh, with an artificial shroud around it. Yep. And uh, a Remington 870 shotgun chopped off. Yep. Uh, with a, a French Spaz 12 foregrip. Stuck yes! On the grenade launcher. You know your guns. It uh, fires 10mm case of this ammunition, which means when Ripley <laughs> loads it, it would need a 95 centimetre long magazine to fit in. Which oh, doesn't. good point, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it puts them side by side? <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's that. But yeah, it's, it's got this real heft to it. And obviously it's the, the hero weapon they use at the front. It's, it's really meaty. And it's got this kind of... Well, I'll play the sound effect now, but it goes... <laughs> When it actually fires off in it, they spent, I think Cameron spent a day working uh, out how to get the perfect sound for that particular uh, gun, and it's it's classic. So if you if you ever played Alien vs. Predator on the PC, or indeed the more recent uh, Xbox 360 PS3 version, that and the motion tracker kind of complete the experience and make it you know more fun to actually play and, and get. Again, it's sort of sensory memory there firing up. The, the smart rifle is also pretty cool. Um, mm, yeah. With that, with that, that harness it's mounted on, with, uh, which is basically a Steadicam rig. Yes, I was going to say. So it, it kind of takes the weight out, so it's, it's really kind of floaty look to it. That has a similar sound to the pulse rifle. Um, it, it's different. It's a bit slower and a bit deeper, but it, it, it's a, effectively the same basic sound. Um, mm. But, yeah, it, it's really cool when I, when I was a when I was a teenager it was exactly the kind of thing that, that I liked in films and uh, yeah. I think uh, that was a very deliberate uh, point with all of the design of the military stuff they just wanted to get all the teenage boys to go this is the most awesome thing ever and it and worked it totally worked So they, they escape, and then there's that bit where Newt slips away from her, and she holds it back. And it, it seems like it's almost like she's not panicking enough at that point. But then when Sigourney really unleashes, where when Newt's been snatched away properly this time, it's everything about what she's lost and everything about who she's lost all comes up in this one scene of hysteria, and it's it's fantastic from Sigourney. I, you've, I've really got to hand it to Sigourney Weaver for this one. She threw herself into this part. She did not just turn up, get paid her, what was it, one million dollars? Yeah, one million dollars. One million, and just, you know, give a half-assed performance. She earns that one million dollars. One twenty-fourth the amount that Arnold Schwarzenegger got paid for Batman and Robin. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So then you get the scene where she tools up uh, on the, uh, the second dropship and goes in to find Newt. And again, this, there really hadn't been before then, and frankly, any afterwards were going to be influenced by this. Just really strong, militaristic, but also very maternal females in cinema. You've got Sarah Connor. Yeah, Sarah Connor again, um, very, very much influenced by uh, James Cameron's version of Ripley. So yeah, Cameron he has been responsible for um, putting forth more than just your average representation of depiction of strong women in cinema. It's also nice that Ripley isn't played as for sex appeal as well mm. um, in this film. So often, like there are loads and loads of strong female characters, but um, like we were talking about the Avengers a while mm. ago, and while Black Widow is a strong 
female character. She is most definitely played up for sex appeal. And it's interesting that, you know, um, Sigourney Weevy... Weevy? Weevil. Sigourney Weaver is, like, visibly sweating. She's, like, um, her hair's a mess. She's got grime all over her face by the end of the movie. It... She's not a sexy woman being badass. She's mm. a tough woman in a bad situation, and she looks like she's in a bad situation, but she's coping well despite that. Well, she's coping well, but it's always just on this sort of hair's thread. Like, you could see that yeah. if she allowed herself to, she'd just break down. So, actually, yes, when she finds the locating device, and it would appear that Newt is absolutely gone and, and, and gone from her, she breaks down. And it's like that's what she's been holding off all this time. So she has to draw herself back up again when Newt starts screaming. And again, that old man's hand, like Herman from Family Guy, starts crawling out of the pot. Ripley finds Newt, and then they meet the Queen. And again, you've got to question why she's breathing, because we've not seen the aliens really breathing before this, but the Queen sort of... <laughs> Gives you Stop that, please. Really <laughs> terrifying that feeling. That scared me right then. <laughs> of of size and weight and like like she's this, this enormous organism and she's not just breathing and she's not just there. She's fucking furious that Ripley's even there in her presence. And that's like, <laughs> kind of thing going on. And it's like her teeth are made of glass or diamond or something the, the diamond thing kind of sort of plays into the notion that she's this sort of weird perfect organism not perfect by human standards but perfect for the environment with which she creates around herself and the queen is one of all time greatest monsters of cinema I mean she's kind of like if you look at her under full lighting like that professional lighting guy was trying to do she looked like this weird spindly totally top heavy creature which actually if you just sort of ran 30 paces in front of it you could probably keep ahead of it you know no, no real issues and it would be basically fucked but in that confined space in the dark you know in her domain in her lair she is fucking terrifying I also like um, when you're first introduced to the queen uh, you're not sure if she has like the ter terrifying more that mm. the other aliens have. It's just like that weird, almost like sucker-like shape. But then, of course, the mouth comes down. Uh, mm. this, <laughs> this weird carapace, and then you see these this huge jaw filled with teeth. Uh, it's more scary than any any weapon that the. Um, aliens have on them because it's just so the teeth are, so, are almost like knives because the aliens actually have like the way their teeth are designed they have like incisors and then canines yeah. on the side but her mouth is just all canines they're all knives at, that could just rip you to shreds it's terrifying to shreds you say everyone looking at that yes okay that picture is the Jabberwock from Lewis Carroll's Alice through the looking glass was this one? I believe so, yes. Lewis Carroll created this, and the image of the Jabberwock pervades the alien, but very specifically in the Queen. If you, if you look at a picture... I'm going to stick a picture of this on the, um, 
on the forum. But uh, yeah, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. But when she is searching for Newt on the ship and she's snatching up the um, the panels, and she becomes the monster from all of our childhood nightmares, giant fanged beast in the dark. It, it, it knocks the alien feel up to a, a new level. When the Queen gestures to Ripley to just go, after Ripley just let off a few flames to say, look, you know what I can do, I know what I can do, I'm just going to go now. And then the egg opens. It's up in the air as to whether the Queen bade that actually happen. But either way, Ripley's little cock of the head is like, well, what the fuck is that? And, and then it's kind of like, everything about me cannot allow you to carry on after what you've fucking done. So everything she does after that is pure act of revenge, and it's to get rid of the nightmares, and it's to fight back against the creatures. Because she's not really had the chance to kill any aliens until now. And she is out for fucking blood at this point. Because they've taken everything, not only from her, but from Newt. It's a great scene as well, because... She's been living in absolute terror of the, the image of these creatures mm. for ages. And I know she was brave and she was strong in the first Alien movie, but nobody goes through a situation like that and not suffer severe trauma. Like, I, I totally understand why she's having nightmares and waking up every morning covered in sweat. It, it was a horrible experience. So this scene is almost like... It's uh, uh, what do they refer to it in psychology when um, uh, you're forced to confront your fear? Um, Aversion in therapy. A way. Yeah. So it's al- it's almost like that where she's just like, right, well, fuck you, alien. I'm I'm the boss here. You're not going to scare me anymore. I'm going. You should fear me. I'm going to put you in your place. Uh, it's just a you know a great reversal. Mm. It's she. She gets the opportunity to um, to take control of her deepest fear and her her nightmares in a way that you know most people wouldn't get to do. She's she's suffering from post traumatic stress syndrome. It would appear um, uh, towards the beginning of it, and part of the therapy um, sometimes for uh, post traumatic stress is to because you, your brain gets locked into a pattern of reliving the events that have caused the the trauma and not reaching a conclusion so being able to go through those events again but reach the conclusion that she wants to reach would be like a really key way of of breaking that pattern for her and and yes it does give her the opportunity to then move away from that potentially without the nightmares and then to counterpoint that you've got the ultimate matriarch that she's going up against uh effectively ripley ripley situation is that the queen by extension her species took Ripley's daughter away from her and then Ripley got another daughter this species took the parents away from her and then this species took Newt away from Ripley again so it is Ripley clawing back the ties to her motherhood and then the Queen has to witness Ripley tearing apart her babies and then in her you know, mind justifiably goes like fuck this you are not getting away clean and so she, she chases her and when she gets up onto the ship and, and, and commits this act of vengeance, it's, it's like she's just evening the odds at this stage. Not that the Queen is relatable, but, it's, but they're both driven by an immense uh, maternal force. 
And then you get that showdown where, much like at the uh, end of Alien, Ripley makes herself as the creature, gets into the power loader like she gets into the spacesuit, and uh, takes it on hand to hand. It is such a, just a feeling of a, like you've gotten through all of this roller coaster, and then this is like the triple spiral at the end. It's like get away from her, you bitch. Best line in the film. Best line in the world. Best line in the world, yeah. <laughs> I actually, not I actually, not, I actually, not my daughter, you bitch, if you will. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. yeah. We said that exact same thing in uh, when we were doing Harry Potter. That that it it hits exactly the same note. When I read the uh, novelization, because I was kind of well into Aliens in the nineties, um, the line is "Get away from her, you." I don't know if that's because they just didn't want any naughty words in a book where people get eviscerated left, right, and center. Um, but uh, yeah, get away from her, you. And I think that's. Um, I, I order. Oh, you. Oh, oh, you. You queen, you. You are queen. <laughs> I think in the TV version, it's just like, get away from her. And then it cuts to the queen going. I was like, oh, well, that kind of destroyed a fantastic line. Get away from her. Oh, you. <laughs> but this is what we had to endure. This is how I first saw Aliens, the TV version, the cut-down version. But, I mean, you know, we, we had to because I was 12 and had no access to videos. I imagine a lot of the scenes in the TV version looked pretty rubbish because of the amount of cutting and editing mm. they'd have to do. That yeah. first encounter of the Marines, you know, the bit where everyone gets killed, the must have been terrible, mm. terrible. Because uh, every second somebody gets acid burning their face, gets something ripped off or something like that. So how do you even put that scene on TV? Why even bother? Yeah. Oh, well. So then you've got Ripley in the power loader versus the Queen, and it's this fantastic kind of clash of the Titans thing. And they really... They, they kind of spin it out. It's not just this sort of like quick, quick, bang, 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 and then and then down. It's not rock'em, sock'em robots. It actually it feels uh, physical. And again, it's all down to the, the fantastic model work and Sigourney Weaver really throwing herself into that. When when the Queen's sort of slamming her with her tail and then you know shoving that second maw in there, she screams and it, it just feels like this full-throated thing. And she's got this real intensity in her eyes. And then when it goes yeah you know, toppling over, anyone else notice that the Queen, the tip of the Queen's tail gets knocked off when they fall into the airlock? I yeah, I yeah. saw that. Yeah. I, I wonder if they broke the model. <laughs> it, very lightly very possible but uh, but yeah and then you get that bit of music by James Horner the, the Bishop's Countdown music which you'll remember from trailer after trailer after trailer and the only reason I didn't play it earlier for the uh, bit where they get away from the reactor when it explodes was so I could play it now and then she's out and gone and it mirrors the end of Alien in, in that perfect kind of way 
uh, only Ripley's sort of just hanging on to her arm, and it's like she's going to break in two at this point. It just it ramps up everything that happened in Alien. Overall, the film is not as subtle as Alien. I will give you that. The film is not as... I would say it's not as crafted, but everything about it looks like they, they fought tooth and nail to get it the way it was. And they don't just sort of churn it out, and they aren't doing it in a half-fast way. I'd say that both films are exceptionally accomplished at what they were both trying to do. It's, it's a I fantastic think, pairing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think one of Alien's uh, great virtues is it isn't just a straight remake of the first one, mm. which so many sequels are. Um, Ghostbusters 2 is a good movie, but it is kind of just a remake of the events of the first Ghostbusters movie in a slight told in a slightly different way. Um, just saw hasn't... Men in Black 2, and it was not only just a retread of everything that happened in the first one, with like Ace Ventura 2 when Nature Calls, just like, con- like referencing the same jokes again, but it was also fuck boring as well. Yeah. That's and a new but... phrase. <laughs> but they, but they, they, but they wisely decided. Look, we're not going to be able to replicate um, the same tone and feel of the first movie and get the same reaction from audiences. Mm. So let's make a different movie, uh, a movie that's loyal to what made the first film great, but also has a different flavour, a different feel, and you know, bring something new to the table which so many sequels don't do. Like Back to the Future 2, like The Two Towers, uh, like The Bourne Supremacy, it expands the world and tells you that, okay, right, you've had a a, a focus view in the first one just to get you into this. Now let's just broaden the scope and bring in more elements. I think that it being a pairing is very important because without Alien, Aliens would not be nearly as terrifying, I don't think. Mm. Because you start off at seeing what one of these things can do. Mm. And if you had just cut straight to seeing half a dozen of them you know, at the same time, uh, yes, that is still terrifying. Obviously, that's still terrifying. But it's all the more affecting because you have already seen, you know, it, it, it's that much more because you're taking what you already know, which is already bad, and then multiplying it by, you know, however many you've got on the on the screen at that time. So it's I don't know. I, I, I think I think that it being a pairing is is a very good point and very important one. The only thing I would say is that the um, the power loader is a, a massively impractical device. It's compared to a forklift, for instance, it's rubbish. You can't lift things as high. It clearly overbalances very easily. It's it doesn't look like you can bend your knees. Yeah, it looks cool. And it's awesome for fighting giant alien queens. <laughs> but it's kind of rubbish for moving stuff around in a in a, in a hangar bay. Um, so, uh, however, it, it is a very cool bit of kit. Mm. And there's something kind of gun like uh, like early Gundam about it, like uh, Japanese fighting robots. So yeah, I believe this film did very very well in Japan, possibly as a result. <laughs> it, it's kind of uh, the, the, the armored exoskeleton, which um, has been in science fiction for a long time. Mm. Um, certainly back to the book Starship Troopers, which is 50, late fifties, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's it's a much more utilitarian. It's not a military piece of kit. It's very much like a the one in Avatar. Yeah, but um, it uh, it does the job. It does fulfills the role in the film, but yeah, massively impractical. And then there's that wonderful bit, the last twenty seconds or so, where uh, after the credits, where uh, did you all turn it up and listen very carefully? I did. Yes. 
Uh, yes. Remember. So you heard that. Mm-hmm. Indeed. It's a facehugger scuttling. That's almost like Cameron gave whoever decided to kill Newton Hicks and to do that in Alien 3 the gun and was then surprised when they used it. It's like, sequel bait? You don't want to put a sequel to this film, really. It Just let him rest, let him sleep. But no. I wonder whether it was James Cameron's decision or an executive's decision to do that. Oh, put a facehugger in there. It's not the first time that no. executives have interfered. It's a fantastic moment when she's banging on the window and screaming at the top of her voice, and then you cut to outside the window and you can barely hear her. And the, the, the hammering the window with the chair is totally ineffective. And it's that, you know, again, ramping up the tension and sort of the, the, the soundscape and the, the sound effects at that point. Fantastic. It's also very metaphoric. Mm. For the fact that she's not being heard, they've ostensibly got cameras and microphones and all sorts in that room. You know, we should be able to observe you, you'll be safe at all times, and then they can't see a thing or hear. But anyway, there's this one bit where the facehugger has to go across the floor and then jump up at her. Uh, But for some reason, they couldn't get the mechanism to work. They could get it to go in reverse. They could get it to go downwards. So what they did was they took that single frame where the facehugger goes downwards and reversed it... So basically, between running on the floor and then jumping onto her face, there's like a single frame where the facehugger is actually going in reverse and it's going upwards. And for that one frame, the water which is raining down is going upwards. Uh, Cameron was sort of like, oh, I don't know if you can do this. And it was like, dude, no one's going to notice. This was way before DVD. And you can't even really see it on on Blu-ray. So it's just, if they hadn't told me it was there, I, I wouldn't have known. It's just, it's... But it's that, that, that super fast duh, 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 cut, so it's like it's on her in a second, and you're not thinking about the frames. But it's just a, a neat little bit of, again, stuff. I love the fact that when they worked with models, they had to work around shit like this. And the problem with computers is that ultimately, if it gets fucked up, you just go, right, just, I, I don't know, this is oversimplification of an extremely complex situation, but you can actually isolate individual issues and fix them rather than trying to ha- find a workaround which I don't know I think has somehow killed a little bit of the um, uh, improvisation of cinema and filmmaking I think that's possibly what Neil means when he talks about how much he loves uh, practical effects it's the, the, the discipline behind it and the ability to work around the flaws well limitations make you more creative and mm. find more creative solutions to problems but the problem the problem with CGI is they remove limitations suddenly you can do whatever the hell you want so yeah when you say necessity is the mother of invention and uh, yeah. that is utterly removed well not utterly but largely removed with CGI because you can have whatever explosions you want Interesting enough, they've never really gone for CGI aliens. In all of this series, they've actually gone for practical. Even the bits which look like they're CGI in Alien 3 are actually mostly a rod puppet on chroma key. It just it doesn't look right. And they, they do experiment at times with some, some very early basic CG. But this was before Jurassic Park, and they were by no means as high-profile a production team as Industrial Light and Magic. So, yeah, we'll talk about that when we do Alien 3. But most of the time, the aliens have been absolutely solid in the series. Do you think that's because they don't have eyes? Oh, no, wait, that can't be uh, the reason, because in Alien Resurrection, they have the dumb one that looks crap, that has eyes. Um, I was, go- <laughs> I was going to say No, that was that, practical as well. Yeah, I was going to say that um, because they don't have eyes, it, yeah. it, there's not that kind of, oh, that doesn't look 
quite right. natural that yeah. because a lot of animals um you, you're you, you're looking at their eyes to mm. get a sense of their character and personality and when they're practical there's always that sense that they're kind of dead um but with, because the aliens don't have eyes and, and they're completely soulless, the kind of yeah. practical effects kind of work. School of Movies is fueled by Patreon and you folks who keep us going. Thank you very much, as always, to our $15 sponsors who get credit every episode. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Sabard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, Dave Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco. Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Ungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And next week, we journey down into the abyss. Next time you watch the original Die Hard... At the bit at the end where Al saves the day, Michael Kamen didn't have time to compose that bit of score. So listen out for this bit of James Horner from Aliens. It does not belong in Die Hard, but it is a great triumphant moment, especially for Al. thing that uh, Newt says about are we going to sleep, can we dream um, I think we both can, is a fantastic moment for you to resolve this story the notion being that, um, that you know, Newt and Ripley were torn to pieces and have managed to pull themselves back together with each other's help and with Hicks and Bishop and this notion that if they hadn't been able to do it in quite this same way then it doesn't matter that they still lived that they would still wake up screaming and sweating and they would never... The, the, the rest of their lives would be haunted by this, but this notion that they've actually done what they needed to do and they've put this, these fears to rest is so important. Are we going to sleep all the way home? All the way home. Can I dream? Yes, honey. I think we both can. So, 
We will leave Ripley and Newt at the end of the arc in many, many different universes, and they got home and everything was fine, and Ripley they and... They lived happily ever after. They didn't live happily ever after. There were some problems. Ripley had to explain a lot of shit that happened. But um, she got a better job as a better forklift driver? I don't know. She got compensated by the company. Or more likely, the company had them both assassinated because they knew secrets they weren't supposed to know. Or but, uh, Ripley busted the company fucking wide open like Sarah goddamn Connor. Yes. Something more like T2 happened in the, the real Aliens sequel. And it was directed by James Cameron. But we'll never know because we don't live in a parallel reality. <laughs> Thank you very much to all my guests for sticking around for, ooh, what's this been now? 8, 9, 10, 11, 3 hours 15. Bloody hell. Sorry, Alex. You are troopers. Starship troopers, let me say. Oh, God. Thank you very much to Josh Garrity from Kennerwins. Thank you very much for having me. Leah Haydu of Gamerdook. Thank you. Matt Ramsey of Dorktunes. Thank you. James Midgemeister Perkins of Geekwood. Thank you very much. The Cameron season continues. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. He bums Deep Blues. And it, it went from... I can't say he bombed it. I, I, went, I was going really technical there, and suddenly <laughs> this weird midgism. <laughs> no offense, James. Okay, right. There's also the lingering shot of her hand resting on her breast, where um, I say breast. What I mean is breast, as in breast bone, but when I say breast, it sounds like boob. There's also. Not overly professional. <laughs> Ladies have boobs. I don't know if you guys knew that. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> you just oh. blew his mind. <laughs> he was, he was shattered his innocence there. Oh. <laughs> That's what I do. You know. Viral. You know we have boobs and play video games? That's <laughs> true. I'm looking at him right now. <laughs> I... Oh. Oh, you know we're going to get accused of corruption of the young, don't you? Uh, of the face hugger and John, you said yesterday it's lucky that Sigourney Weaver had long bony fingers and not big fat sausages. I think you yeah. added the big fat sausages, but yes. That's what she said. Serious heads, folks. Serious. Well, it wasn't my fault that time. I had nothing to do with that. I'm telling myself off at this point. Good. It, it's it's interesting because um, because uh, she's own because because of um. The uh, sorry, I'm just say something resembling anything. <laughs> I'll start again. Okay. And they didn't listen to Sigourney Weaver, who said that the idea of AVP was stupid, and they made those, and they were stupid. <laughs> I just made a pig okay. noise. You just <laughs> snorted. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't gonna say anything, but yeah. Oh, I was. Okay, hang on. I won't go back now. Okay. Um, but again, that's the the um, the them getting the uh, bollocks. I'm still here. I'm still here. Still here. Josh. Oh, we've lost Combine. Josh. Yeah! Combine! Combine, goddamn you! Just one by one, every person in the podcast just disconnected. <laughs> oh, God. They found us. Game over, man. Game over. Game fucking over. On Skype. No one. Joshua ain't needs. dead, man. His life signs are real low, but he ain't dead. <laughs> Okay, I'm putting the Gatorade down now. <laughs> oh, while we're on Basically, the subject of that, I have an interesting anecdote about my brother. 
Okay, so there was we set up this uh, log fire in the front room, you know, chimney, what have you, log fire. And my dad, th- my brother was very young at the time, like uh, four years old. And my dad tells my brother, okay, whatever you do, don't go anywhere near the fire, don't touch the fire, it's very hot, you'll get hurt. What's the first thing my brother does? He sticks his hand in the fire. And he goes, ow, oh, it hurts, it hurts. He goes upstairs, you know, you know, puts it underwater for however long. Comes back downstairs, sticks his hand back in the fire. <laughs> Again, I love my brother. He's uh, an interesting. Does he still character. have all his limbs? He's a bit of a rock star, which he, you know, plays for a band and he does all sorts of crazy stuff. But with does when he set you... things on fire sometimes? <laughs> sometimes. Um, <laughs> I, I would like He's to say he was very young, but still an idiot. Leah, you, you're smiling and waving. At who? Oh, what? You were... Sm- you were uh, Matt was back. You, oh, I see. Occasionally, you should probably read the chat in the positive. It's not a complicated <laughs> story, to be that fair. That is an occasion. <laughs> Relatively How many short more times do I have to do it than that to make it occasional? <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> oh, we've lost Sharon. She's going to shriek now. <laughs> I mean, I, I am pretty hilarious. I'm, I'm <laughs> you can't hear this, but she is caterwauling. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's bleeding into your mic now. <laughs> it's almost more hilarious than I can hear. <laughs> It sounds like she's, like, rolling all over the floor. Joker toxin. It's the only explanation. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want to see. A nice big smile. <laughs> okay, are we back together again? Is there a motion tracker beeping somewhere? Did I just imagine that? This is the most ill-coordinated podcast ever. I am Gorman at this point, and I need to be rid <laughs> Lay down a suppressing fire and it dials it up to 10. And it dials it up to 11. (laughs) It's a little bit higher. (laughs) (laughs) One higher, in fact. Well, it's one louder. One louder. One louder. (laughs) Don't don't touch that. Well, no, don't even point. You've had enough on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me laugh again. (laughs) Yeah, I I started to ask and then I got cut off. Are you okay? (laughs) Yes, I'm fine. Occasionally, I I have this really weird sense of humour. A lot of the time, it's just not at all twitched by anything. And then something will just take me as ridiculously absurd and I can't stop laughing. What was it that actually made you laugh? Time. It was off. it was just what Matt said about it's not a complicated story. <laughs> For some reason, that just struck me as being the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, I am incredibly amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly so. Yeah. You sound like Noel Coward at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The tidying in the worst place of all is probably the worst tagline, to be honest. <laughs> is it? Is it the butt? <laughs> I was going to say the back of the ball, but um, 